Today's podcast is brought to you by newspapers.com, the ultimate destination for exploring the mysteries of the past. If you're fascinated by true crime, get ready to dive into the stories that made headlines. Newspapers.com offers a billion pages of historical newspapers from the U.S. and beyond, and you can search the entire collection in seconds. Their vast newspaper collection is a goldmine for eyewitness accounts, crime scene photos, news reports, and more. Whether you're interested in famous crimes or long-forgotten cases, Newspapers.com gives you a front-row seat to more than 300 years of history. For our listeners, Newspapers.com has a special offer. Use the code CUPOFMURDER for an exclusive 20% discount on your subscription. That's promo code CUPOFMURDER at Newspapers.com. Sign up today and start unraveling the true crime mysteries that keep you up at night. Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, What? more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Today's episode is sponsored by Ana Luisa. With Mother's Day fast approaching, I wanted to tell you guys about a brand I've recently stumbled across that took the daunting task of gift buying and made it an absolute breeze. Anna Luisa, spelled A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A, creates high-quality, unique jewelry pieces at affordable prices that will make you, or whoever you give the piece to, feel empowered, elegant, and at their finest. I chose a few pieces for my mom this year, and I was so excited that I decided to give it to her a little early. She absolutely loved each thing that I picked out, and she's been wearing them almost daily. There is such a wide range of items to choose from that it makes it easy to shop for almost every single style and aesthetic. The best part? Ana Luisa is carbon neutral from their packaging to their products, meaning you feel good about what you're buying and how it impacts the planet that we live on. With high-quality jewelry starting at just $39, many, many designs to choose from, a stellar price, and care for the environment, Ana Luisa is a brand that you cannot go wrong with. Want to get some pieces for your mom or yourself? Go to shop.analuisa.com morning to make mom stay and treat her to new jewelry pieces with Ana Luisa's buy one, get one 40% off sale. One piece for her and one piece for you. Remember that shop.analuisa.com slash morning to get your pieces buy one, get one 40% off. I know you will love them. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Medical mysteries don't always remain such. 
On April 20th, 2013, after days of fighting for her life, a woman died from a mysterious illness that left dozens of doctors scratching their heads. A mystery that they couldn't quite seem to solve. That was until a blood test revealed that it was not an illness that took her life, but a poison distributed by someone she knew quite well. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On April 17, 2013, Robert Ferrante made a frantic call to 911 and told operators in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania that his wife was, quote, conscious and breathing, but not alert. When first responders arrived, they found 41-year-old Autumn Klein lying on the kitchen floor completely unresponsive. Autumn Klein, who was a neurologist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and had returned home only moments before her tumble to the ground at 11.30 at night after an intense day at work. Almost immediately, paramedics noticed a plastic bag containing white powder sitting on the kitchen counter, not far from their patient's body. While asking Robert what the substance was, with him responding that it was creatine that his wife had been taking to help with her infertility, Dr. Autumn Klein's blood pressure and pulse began to drop rapidly. She was rushed into the ambulance and driven straight to the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Presbyterian Hospital, where, just about an hour before, she had clocked out of work. When Dr. Andrew Farkas rushed to meet the stretcher in the hallway, he noted Autumn's contorted arms, twisted face, glassy eyes, and shallow breaths. When her vitals were assessed, her pulse was registering in the low 40s, while her blood pressure was just 48 over 36. While they ran to get the attending physician, Dr. Thomas Martin, co-workers of Autumn's inserted a breathing tube into her trachea and put her on a ventilator. Two minutes later, her once-responsive pupils now sat still, while Dr. Farkas ordered almost every panel and test that he could think of. However, due in large part to her shockingly thin frame and weight of only 107 pounds, nurses were unable to get a blood sample from either her arm or her femoral artery. It was around this time that Robert, along with a friend and colleague, showed up at the hospital where he himself worked as the co-director for the Center of Amyotrophic Lateral Sclerosis Research. While trying to figure out his next course of action, Dr. Farkas listened on as Robert described what happened before he called 911. According to him, Autumn had been complaining about headaches pretty consistently over the last week or so, and when she arrived home that evening, she was nursing yet another. However, this time, the ache did not subside, and instead, Robert watched as his wife grasped her head and suddenly dropped to the floor in their kitchen. Given that tidbit of information, Dr. Farkas and Dr. Martin both suspected that Autumn was suffering from a brain hemorrhage and, scrapping the blood test, ordered an immediate CT scan. The only problem was, though the machine was only a few hundred feet from her bed, Autumn's blood pressure and pulse were so low, protocol demanded that she be left where she was. Not able to watch her suffer any further, Dr. Martin ignored the protocol and, draped in a protective vest and pushing epinephrine every one to two minutes to keep her heart pumping, he himself went inside the room so Autumn could receive her scan. Scans that were completely normal, as were the additional scans ordered for her chest, abdomen, and pelvis. There was no aneurysm, no abnormalities, no tears, spills, clots, or anything of concern. The doctors had absolutely no clue what was wrong with Dr. Autumn Klein. 
About an hour after she arrived at 1.20 a.m., Dr. Martin Page, the hospital's on-call intensivist, Dr. Lori Shutter, who was shocked to find that her colleague, neighbor, and friend was now her patient. At this point, in addition to Dr. Martin, Dr. Farkas, and Dr. Shutter, Robert Ferranto, his colleague, Dr. Robert Friedlander, and Autumn's neurology chair, Dr. Lawrence Welshler, all stood there and spoke back and forth about what might be her prognosis. Everyone agreed that, despite having no clue what was actually causing her condition, Autumn needed a central line as soon as possible. Using an ultrasound, the doctors were able to finally locate her internal jugular vein, and Dr. Farkas inserted the catheter. As soon as he placed the tube inside, they all remarked just how bright red Autumn's blood really was. Fearing he may have accidentally placed a line in the artery, Dr. Farkas alerted Dr. Martin, who, looking at the ultrasound, found that the resident had placed the catheter correctly. Finally able to get some blood for testing, the treatment team, which now included a neurologist, a cardiologist, and an intensive care unit physician, found only one abnormality in Autumn's blood, a high pH balance that showed a high level of acid in her blood, indicating a severe metabolic dysfunction and oxygen levels that were more than double what they are normally. Not sure why her levels were so high, the doctors decided to give her sodium bicarbonate to lower the acid levels and increase the ventilator's speed to try and level out her oxygen, all while continuing to push epinephrine pretty regularly. It was at this point that Dr. Shutter suggested running toxicology screens to check for any drug and or poisons. At 2.17 a.m., while the tests were being ordered, Autumn Klein went into full cardiac arrest and was bagged immediately while nurses took turns performing chest compressions while Dr. Martin kept his hand on her femoral artery to ensure blood was still circulating with each compression. They performed CPR for 22 minutes while Dr. Shutter took over running the code so Dr. Martin could inform Robert about his wife's sudden turn for the worse. Through sobs, he told the doctor that he understood what was going to happen next. And just as they were about to call the code, Dr. Shutter noticed the slight flutter of a pulse. Using the paddles, the doctor shocked her heart and brought her back to a steady, yet slow, heartbeat. It was at this point that they paged the on-call cardiothoracic surgeon who, along with his fellow, discussed a number of different options for the next step of Autumn's care. A few different options were presented to the doctors, one being placing Autumn on an extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, EKMO, and the other being the installation of an intraaortic balloon pump, but all carried with it a lot of risk for her unstable condition and extremely small frame. So small that they wouldn't even be able to place the ECMO lines. So they went with the balloon pump, but as they made their plans, Autumn's vitals once again began to plummet and rapidly changed their choice to an ECMO, despite the concerns that she might lose her limbs due to lack of proper blood flow from the procedure's large lines. With no time to get her into an operating room, the doctors called for an emergency ECMO team and wheeled the large machine to Autumn's bedside. The plan seemed to work and her vitals became regulated while they gave her a transfusion of two units of packed red blood cells and made plans to cool her body to the point of hypothermia to help her recover from her cardiac arrest. Throughout the night, the doctors on her case talked about what may be causing her still mysterious ailment and each made phone calls to local, national, and international experts to try and get as much information as they possibly could to try and help their friend. 
At around 5.30 a.m., it was agreed that Autumn would have to be moved from the emergency room to the cardiothoracic intensive care unit. And upon arrival, they hooked her up to an EEG machine to measure her brain activity. There was none. At around 8.20 a.m., Dr. Frank Guillette, a consultant with the hospital's post-cardiac arrest team, evaluated Autumn and found that, in addition to her lack of brain activity, her pupils did not react to light, she had no gag reflex, and her extremities showed no signs of movement or response to painful stimuli. Given all of this, he placed her chances of meaningful recovery at less than 4%. However, the doctors agreed that it would be unfair to make any big decisions about her lack of brain activity until her body was properly rewarmed. While all of this was going on, one of the doctors called a colleague and filled him in on the case and all of Autumn's symptoms. After listening to the whole story, the colleague suggested that, even though the chances were slim, they should run a test to look for signs of cyanide in Autumn's system. With very little else to go on, the blood was drawn at 2.32 p.m. on April 18th and sent over to Virginia to be tested. While the blood was on its journey to the lab, Lois and Bill Klein drove through the night from Maryland to be with their daughter. However, upon arriving at the hospital, Robert Ferrante refused to take them back to their daughter's room until his adult children, from a previous marriage, arrived from Boston and San Diego. With very little that they could do, the clients went back to the couple's home with Robert and their six-year-old granddaughter, Sienna. They were finally able to see their daughter later that night, and as soon as they laid eyes on her, they knew her chances of living were grim. Over the next two days, the clients and various other family members shuttled back and forth between home and the hospital. But the longer Bill and Lois stayed with their daughter, the angrier they got with the situation. They felt as though they were being left out of every important conversation involving their daughter's care and condition, and were frustrated with their son-in-law's behavior during conversations with the doctors, often offering his own diagnosis rather than listening to their suspicions, with many noting his belief that his wife suffered from an electrical brain surge. With little else to do, the team of physicians started to look into Autumn's medical records and found that, in the weeks leading up to her collapse, she had gone to her family physician and complained about significant hair loss. However, other than an opinion to check into her hormone levels, there was nothing else of note in her medical files. As it became more and more clear that Autumn was not going to recover, the family started talking about her long-standing wish to become an organ donor, with the physicians noting that her liver and kidneys were in good transplant condition and the wish for an autopsy when the time came especially considering that there could be a chance that whatever was making Autumn sick may be genetic and could affect their young daughter. Robert, shockingly, said no to the autopsy. In fact, he was so resistant that a number of the physicians noted the rejection in Autumn's charts. However, the law was not on his side, and in the state of Pennsylvania, an unnatural death requires an autopsy. On Saturday, April 20th, 2013, Robert brought Sienna to the hospital to see her mother, having spent the last two days sending her to school and telling her that mommy had gone off to a meeting. He told her that her mother was very sick and at 11.06 a.m. agreed to take Autumn off of life support. She was declared brain dead at 12.10 p.m. and officially pronounced deceased at 12.31. After her organs were harvested for transplant, Autumn's body was taken in for an autopsy where, much to everyone's dismay, 
nothing of note could determine her cause of death, and her body was released to the funeral home. After her death, one of the many doctors who tended to her case was still desperate to understand what happened to Dr. Autumn Klein. Looking at her chart, he found the original blood test, that's results, had not arrived in time. Results that revealed traces of cyanide in her system. Going to the hospital surveillance tapes to see if she accidentally came into contact with the substance during her treatment, they found that she had not been near the substance. After ruling out suicide as an option, the investigators called to look into the case realized that there was only one option for what happened to Autumn Klein, that she had been poisoned by someone who knew her. The next step for police was to look into Autumn's life and into her personal relationships. There they found not only an extremely successful career, one where she helped women with epilepsy have children and marriage, but a couple who was desperate to add to their growing family. In looking at the text that husband and wife shared the day that she collapsed, police found one from Autumn reminding Robert that she was ovulating, to which he responded that she needed to take her creatine to make sure she got pregnant, something that there is no scientific consensus on working and, in fact, is advised against by the National Institute of Health. They also found that, just days before Autumn collapsed, Robert Ferrante ordered cyanide through his lab. And upon searching his office, police found bottles of the substance containing his fingerprints. When asked about the poison, Robert insisted that they were used in experiments that he was conducting for work. However, police now theorized he laced that creatine he kept insisting his wife took with the poison. But why? Why would this successful man, one who seemed to have the life most dreamed of, take the life of his brilliant wife? According to sources, it was Autumn who wanted a second baby and was going through IVF to achieve her wish, a wish that Robert apparently did not share. Investigators took their suspicions to the funeral home to try and obtain samples of her hair and nails, but it was too late. Autumn had already been cremated. Despite the lack of body and new samples, Robert Ferrante was was arrested on July 24, 2013. Just before his trial in May of 2014, Robert's defense made the mistake of filing a motion and requested the return of a safe that was confiscated during the search of his home. Realizing that something of worth must be in the safe, police looked inside and found a laptop that, for the first time in their investigation, they opened up and searched through. On it, they found that, just four months before Autumn's death, Robert had been searching for cyanide poisoning. Two months before he searched divorce, Pittsburgh, PA. Two weeks before, he looked for does increased vaginal size suggest wife is having sex with another? And days after her death, he searched for potassium cyanide, detecting cyanide, and cyanide creatine. All of this, of course, was brought to the trial, and on November 7, 2014, after a day and a half of deliberation, the jury found Robert Ferrante guilty of the first-degree murder of his wife. He was sentenced to life without parole. His appeals have since been denied. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear a terrible thing happened on April 21st. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.